We are continuing our series in Luke's gospel account, so please turn in your Bible to Luke 8, Luke chapter 8, verse 26. You can do that on your phone. If you brought a Bible, you can do that in one of the Bibles on the pew rack there. What page is it on on the pew rack Bibles? Anybody got it already? Shout it out. 8.13, thank you, my friend. All right, so 8.13, and if you do not have a Bible, let that be our gift to you. We would love for you to take that home. If you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, take that home, read it. We believe it will change you and transform your life, okay? So eight, Luke 8.26, when you get there, say, got it for me so that I know you're still awake. All right, you guys are going to have to talk back to me a little bit this morning, so I like this. This is fun. You are a lively bunch. I like hearing that. Got it. Okay, so if you looked at the sermon title or you're reading ahead, looking into Luke chapter 8, verse 26, you're, you may be like, oh yeah, the exorcism demon passage, like Hollywood has a better take on those. I'll just like put my Bible away. This is a weird, creepy passage. This doesn't apply to me in the United States in suburban America, right? You may be thinking that already as we turn here to Luke chapter 8 and dig into this passage. But I think uh, this is as we approach this text, I think it, it, it has the potential for us to feel disconnected from it, right? Right out of the gates. We see this demon-possessed man. We, uh, we are encountering an exorcism. An exorcism is happening. We're, we're going to encounter a pig-herding community on the southeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you're like, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, some 2,000 years later. So at the surface, I think... That could be the temptation, but the human condition is there, and it's in the text, and I want us to see it today. We will see a man who is a drastic but sobering image of humanity apart from God. We'll see that in the demon-possessed man. And then in the townspeople, we will see people who do not want Jesus disrupting their way of life. So we will meet people in this story who encounter Jesus and find themselves asking, what do you want with me, Jesus? What business do you have with me? You see, we have been people who have probably asked Jesus the same thing at some point in our life. When we had nothing to do with him, when we were lost and enslaved by sin, we may have asked Jesus that same very thing. What do you want with me, Jesus, as he was drawing us to himself? And if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then that may be still true of you today. Well, there's good news for you in this passage. So if you, if you do know Christ, the temptation that is here is to ask Jesus, what business do you, Jesus, son of the most high God, have in the, with that area of my life? With that area that I, yes, you're Lord and Savior of my life, but what, 
What business do you have with my plans, with my money, with my relationships, with my career, with my sexuality, with all these different little nooks and crannies of my life where I can easily stiff arm Jesus. So we can end up telling Jesus we don't have anything in common there. And so the terrifying condition of this demon-possessed man and the chilling response of the townspeople when they tell Jesus there is no space for him in their world is what we'll look at today. So if you like a, an outline, we'll see a couple things. You may want to write these down and then we'll jump right in, okay? So we're going to see the alienating effect of evil, the alienating effect of fear, and the transformational effect of freedom. The alienating effect of evil and fear, and then the transformational effect of freedom. Let's pray, and then we'll jump right in to Luke 8, 26. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. God, that it, even if we may look at it on the surface and feel like we're quite removed from it, God. You can take it. You can pierce our hearts with it. You can use it to, to change us and draw us more and more near to yourself. I pray that you would do that today in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, and in the way that we leave this place, God. Transform us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 8, 26. Open it up there. And we are coming on the heels of last week's sermon of Jesus calming a storm and <clears throat> asking his disciples, where is your faith? And they're really then asking, who is this man who, who, can, <clears throat> who can command the winds and the waves? This kind of man who has power over these natural elements. And today we're going to see Jesus' power over the supernatural. And so let's take a look there. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So, we see that this area where they, they jump into a boat, right? And this, the wind and the waves are crazy. There's a storm happening. Jesus calms those things. And then they're continuing to sail. Just for a second, imagine being a disciple of Jesus this day. You've gone through this crazy, maybe once in a lifetime type storm, and now you're about to encounter a demoniac. You've had weird days in your life, right? I don't know if you've had one that matches this. So they jump back in the boat, and they sail. So Galilee is up here in the top left, just think like northwest. And then they're going down to the Decapolis, that's what Mark refers to it as in his version of this story. They're going down to the Decapolis, and this is kind of in the southeast 
part of the Sea of Galilee. So off the coast, and it's referred to as several different areas. Some people refer to it, some authors refer to it as the city region or the country region. And we get in Luke's account here, the Gerasenes. So it's the, it's the country of the Gerasenes. And that's the region of the southeast part of the Sea of Galilee. So we see that they sail there. And then as soon as Jesus steps out on the land, he's met with a man from the city who had demons. Okay, so what we, what we see in this is we, we, we see the disciples and Jesus sail across the Sea of Galilee after the storm. They're, they're going to a region. Most of what we've seen for the first seven chapters of Luke has happened in Galilee around where Jesus was born. And now we're in to Gentile country. We're in a different world. We're in a different country now. So this is completely different for these men who are following after Jesus. They're in a completely different culture. And so as soon as they step off the boat into this, into this new country, they're met with a man who has demons. He meets Jesus. Right then when they, jump off, when they jump off the boat. But what really should hit us, as we're going to see in the, in the rest of the verses, is this is an unclean region. This is what would have been apparent to the disciples, is how unclean this area that they are stepping into is. And so we've got, uh, we've got a man that comes out. He meets Jesus, and uh, this is what happens next. So he there met him, a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So when Jesus steps ashore, this there's a man from the city. So remember this almost has a interesting mirror image back to Luke. You can kind of probably stay on the same page there, but remember the sinful woman? How is she described? Do you remember that? Look in Luke 7:37, right there on the, probably just the page before. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And then he describes this man as a man from the city who had demons. So possibly a parallel usage here as we meet this man from the city who had demons. How, does, how is he described? He's, he's naked, right? He, doesn't ha- he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house. He's homeless. He lives among the tombs, among the dead. Think about unclean. You're going into, your Jews going into Gentile world. Is there any other place? A rabbi wouldn't even go near these tombs. And yet here's Jesus breaking this barrier to cross over into the Gentile world. Almost a picture of what is to come, right? The gospel going from from Galilee out to the Gentiles. Because our author Luke, guess what? He's going to continue that story. Where? In the book of Acts, isn't he? As the gospel gets unleashed to all nations. And so it's almost like a little wink ahead 
to the second part of this story, which is Luke and then Acts. And so we see it going, going forward here. It's a, it's a picture of the gospel going to the nations. You see, these demons, they have not just camped out and are not just doing a peaceful protest in this man. They have wrecked his life. Do you feel the, the weight of what's happening with this demon-possessed man? Their presence is destructive, and it's destructive immediately. And if not dealt with permanently, it could be eternally destructive. You see, from even Mark's account in Mark chapter 5, we see that not only is he naked, is he homeless, is he living amongst the dead in the tombs? He's crying out. He's scaring the other townspeople and he's harming himself. It says he's cutting himself with stones in Mark 5.5. 5. And so there's evil here. And this evil is causing havoc. It's causing destruction. It is wrecking this man's life. It's basically reduced him down to not even being human in a sense. Do you feel that? Do you see that? You see, we need to know how this demon approaches Jesus. Look back there where it says, there met him a man. See, this is critical in our own lives. In the Gospel of Luke, he, Luke uses this word one other time, and it's in Luke 14.31. Jesus uses this as an illustration when he's talking about the cost of, of following. And he says this, he says, Or what? King going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first, first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. You see, the demon is approaching Jesus to spiritually spar with him. We're getting a look at spiritual warfare. It reads so nice, right? This, and maybe even so desperate. This demon-possessed man, oh, he met with Jesus immediately right after he got off the boat. Yay. You can just kind of read it like that. But it's totally different, right? When you see it in the context of the other usage in Luke, this king who's going to war with another king, they're about to go to war. And so he encounters Jesus in this way. Let's continue. So he's got no clothes doesn't live in a house, lives amongst the tombs. He's crying out, the other accounts tell us. He's harming himself. He's scaring the townspeople. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. We're going to learn some more about the man right here. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. 
so the demoniac may be approaching Jesus with this opposing encounter type style, right? But we see instantly that his posture is broken. He falls down before him. And so this is spiritual warfare, but it's not really a fair fight. This reminds us of the universal respect and authority that only the triune God holds. See, Philippians 2.10 says, So that that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, those who have responded to the gospel with faith and repentance will do so gladly and willingly. And those whose hearts are hardened to the call of the gospel will do so with great fear and trembling like these demons. So, what do you see? You see that the demons are going to answer the question that the disciples actually had in the previous story. Do you see that? Give me a head nod if you're tracking along with that. Do you see that? Who then is this that commands even winds and water? And they obey him? The demons... They say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? See, they know who Jesus is. They have knowledge of Jesus' name from Satan. They, They know who this is. But we must say, what has this knowledge of who Jesus is done for these demons? They have this intellectual awareness of who the Son of God is. But they're still tormenting this man, causing havoc, doing evil. So that is a question back to us, right? Is our relationship with Jesus, is the way in which we engage with him, just a simple intellectual acceptance and awareness that he is the Son of God? I hope it is far, far greater than that. And we're going to see a picture of that here soon. But they, they do this, they call out this name, the name of Jesus as almost a ritual in an exorcism to kind of ha- usurp authority over him. Even though they know they're outmatched, they call out his name because there's, in this custom, there's a lot to be said in who knows the other. And who has control over each other via the name. So we see that this guy has supernatural strength. Right? Chains and shackles, they can't, they can't bind him. He would break bonds. No one can really control him. Remember, he's, he's almost in this dehumanized type state. What is he? We're, we're ha- I, I'm, are you having trouble connecting? Do you run into demon possession often? It seems like this type of, type of activity was more active in the time of Jesus, right? We see a couple more of these demon type accounts when Jesus is, is on the earth, when he is incarnate. Why? Because in a sense, it's true. War is happening, Right? Satan is, is pulling the ripcord. He's like, this is not going to happen. 
all hands on deck, all hell has broken loose. We've got to send everybody. And so we see these encounters actually happen more in the time of the Gospels because of that fact. The Son of God is walking around the earth. And Satan's knowledge of what is about to unfold, right? The plan, who Jesus is, he's getting worried. And so maybe we don't encounter this as much, but we can really relate to the fact that this man is utterly hopeless. He's hopeless. He's alienated from God, from others, and even from himself. But you see, then they sailed. Jesus, did he have to go here? He could have just quieted the storm and went right back to Galilee. God pursues man. He pursues man as early as the fall. Where are you? He asks Adam and Eve. He pursues man and he pursues this man. He has a specific purpose for sailing here. He could have taken that boat anywhere he wanted to. Remember, he controls not just the boat. He's not just the captain steering the ship. Hey, name's Jesus. I'm steering. He controls the wind and the waves. He could have taken this boat wherever he wanted to. And here they are pursuing this man. In this man, this is a drastic but sobering image of humanity apart from God. Are you relating with this man or is he very far and distant? See, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. What hope does this man have? He's like, he's way worse than I am, right? This dude's got demons. This guy's, he's harming himself. He's homeless. He's living amongst the tombs. No one wants to go near him. He's way worse than I was. This is a picture of our condition apart from God. Listen to this. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was our condition. We were dead in our trespasses. We weren't just really, really bad and really, really hopeless. We were dead. Turn over to one more, one more to Philippians. Philippians. Oh, sorry. Colossians. Colossians 1. Keep going. Keep going. Colossians 1.21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Not only were we dead, we're alienated apart from God, yet 
Jesus pursues this man and he pursues us even when we're dead, even when we are alienated from God. So I ask you, who could deal with this man? Could any doctors, could any counselors, could any townspeople, could any family, could any friend, could any life coach, could any good advice help this man? Who could deal with this man? And for us to remember to look back on, in our condition, if you know Christ as your Savior, who could have dealt with you? We aren't so different from the man amongst the tombs. See, there's only one, one who is all-powerful who can deal with us. So, let's look at verse, verses 30, verse 30 there. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. So it's not just one demon in this demon-possessed man. Many had, had entered him. So Jesus complies with the exorcism protocol of the day, right? He's, he's asking his name. And so the, the nature of, of the exorcism protocol of the day is you needed to know the name of the demon before you could, could exorcise the demon. And so it was dependent upon that. So he complies with it, but in the same like incredible Jesus-like way, he's like, you're not going to give me a name. Who cares? We're going to keep going. I love that about Jesus, right? Because he doesn't give him a name. Do you see that? He gives him a name in a sense. He says legion, but he really gives him what? A number, doesn't he? He gives him a number. He basically says, you know that, that, that military Roman squadron like of 6,000? We're like that. That's what he says. Think about us like that. So again, he's going back to this intimidation tactic. Remember, they're at war. This is spiritual war. And he's going back to that same tactic. So, he, so Jesus doesn't comply and doesn't play their game at all, even though he just kind of tongue-in-cheek asks him, what is your name? And so then, we've got this abundance of demons. And verse 31 says, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now this could like totally throw you off of like, Jesus, the pigs, what are you doing, man? You could either go like, poor pigs, oink, oink, or you could go, total waste of bacon. What is going on here? Right? But it can, it can kind of throw you for a loop in this part of the text. If, you're, if you start to zoom in on the pigs, right? The pigs is going back to this. Remember what we started? They hit the shore and they should be thinking Gentiles, tombs, demon, pigs. If you're a Jew, this is unclean, right? That's what you should be thinking. If you're a Jew... And you're a disciple of Jesus. 
Also, we should see here, this is these, these demons. Think about, remember their posture's broken. They know who Jesus is and they beg, beg, beg. Do you see that? Verse 28, what do they do? They beg him. Verse 31, what do they do? They beg him. Verse 32, what do they do? You can do this part. Yeah, beg him, right? They beg him. And they say, don't send us to the abyss. What is the abyss? It is often associated <clears throat> with large bodies of water, but it's this bottomless, this depth of sea. But it's referred to as this holding place for evil, this kind of bottomless place where they await judgment day. And so this army, right? This army, they, they use this military term of legion, which they, they step offshore into Gentile, into the Gentile world. And that area that they stepped off into, it's given to Roman military veterans are housed there. They're, they're occupying the land there. And one of the, the armies that was there was a legion. And their mascot happened to be what? The wild boar. So Jesus is giving this picture as well right, to this Gentile audience who's reading Luke to say, Rome, Rome will, the military power of Rome, that will fall, that will be beneath my feet. I will conquer all. And so Jesus is saying, this is, this is no, this is no match for me. This is no match for my power. So then, we see that the large, <clears throat> large herd of pigs was feeding there. They asked him not to, uh, not to send them to the abyss. And Jesus, he, he complies, right? He doesn't, he doesn't torment the demons. He doesn't, he doesn't have them depart to the abyss. But then they, they ask and he gives permission. Then the demons come out of the man. So Jesus doesn't send them to the pigs. The demons, they get permission from Jesus, but then they go into the pigs and their destructive nature basically sends them and the pigs into the abyss. So why the pigs have to die, Jesus? Why the pigs, right? Come on, man. So the, imagine if you're this man and you've had these demons just tormenting you. Do you think after, after Jesus is gone and you've been freed of, these pig, uh, freed of these pigs, freed of these demons, right? These pigs are tormenting me. These demons, you've been freed of these demons. Would you not have some doubts? Man, I'm, 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 hearing, I'm hearing voices again. I'm doing things I don't want to do again. What a picture of God's grace that these, these demons being released and then the pigs being falling into the abyss with the demons. What a picture of God's grace that that is. That Jesus values those who are made in God's image. And he gives this demon-possessed man assurance that these demons are no longer in you. You saw them come out of you. And Mark records that there's 2,000 pigs that go over the bank. And they went into the pigs and down the bank and drowned. 
And he says, you are free. Remember this. What a reminder this is for this man in his testimony that he has been freed. But now we see a new conversation happen. And this is where this text really turns from a demon possession, uh, a deliverance of a demon possession, a demon possessed man to this, this interaction with the surrounding community. It's, it really changed, the, the story kind of changes here. So look at these dialogues and look at when, when Jesus, when these people encounter Jesus and how he begins to kind of stir things up with them. So when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, see how he's, that's his new title. So he's not the demon-possessed man or the demoniac anymore. He's the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it told to them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. This not only is the man alienated because of the evil that was residing in him, now he's been freed of that. The effects of this then spill over into great fear into the people. And it has an alienating effect within them. So the man from the city is now at the feet of Jesus, like the woman of the city in Luke 7, 38. Remember the woman of the city, the man of the city. She's at the feet of Jesus. Now he's at the feet of Jesus. What a beautiful picture and a parallel image here in Luke 7 and in 8. And now these people, right? Maybe some of them are those, were those pig herders, those pig owners and the townspeople. They come back and they're like, what is going on here? We were comfortable with our little demoniac. He was just tormenting himself and others, and he was really strong. No one could bind him, but we were comfortable with that. And now, Jesus, you've kind of gone and switched things up. What's happening here? And so we get kind of a repetition of the story in 36. The man is now clothed, right? He's now clothed and in his right mind. And he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And they were afraid. That clothing is a picture of him being able to be welcomed back into the community. And you would think, man, Jesus has healed the demoniac. This is awesome. Jesus, we're going to build a statue of you. We welcome you into our community. We have no more reason to be afraid. The guy who has been screaming over and living in the tombs, he's healed. This is incredible. Do they respond like that? No, right? They're afraid. This 2,000 plus pigs have gone into the water, into the bank. That guy who was once like screaming and stuff, he's now chill. 
And you're the one who had the power over that. This is messing with us. This is costing some of us money. These pigs were some of our livelihood. And they have not as much value on those who are made in the image of God and this one soul being transformed as Jesus does. This man has been transformed and the one who can do the transformations is the one in which they fear. But it's not like a biblical command of the, the beginning of wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. This is they're afraid and they're fearful for the wrong reasons. So their world is being messed with. You see that? They don't know how to respond to him. How disruptive to your life would Jesus have to be where you would just tell him, no thanks. Can you get back in the boat and go away? You're messing with my life too much. The stuff that I like to keep secret, you don't belong there, Jesus. The things that I like control over, I like control over. I don't know if you got that memo, Lord. You're not Lord there. Get back in the boat. So long. How disruptive. Because we don't like our stuff messed with. And Jesus is in the business of messing with these people's stuff. Not only is he messing with this demon-possessed man's stuff in a great way, right? He's, he's totally changed him. This guy was alienated. He's welcomed back in. But now he's messing with the townspeople. So let's take a look at the last couple verses here. The man from whom the, the demons had gone, remember that's his new title, begged. There's, there's the at reference to begged again. We see that Jesus is the one whom these people are attributing great power to. They know who's in control now. People in this story, they beg, the demons beg Jesus. Now the demon-possessed man who the demons have gone from is begging Jesus. So he begs that he might, might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Okay. Requests from the demons, right? Don't torment us. Don't throw us into the abyss. Let us have permission to go into the pigs. Jesus is like, okay, okay, fine by me. Then people who have witnessed this, been told about this, the townspeople, they come back around with a request and are like, hey, you're, we're afraid and you're messing with our world. We don't like you here. Can you get in the boat? And he's like, okay. And then the one guy who's transformed in this story wants to be with him. He's like, hey, can I go with you? You're saying yes to a lot of people. So I'm just going to ask for whatever I feel like right now. Can I go with you? 
And you're like, yeah, Jesus is building this group of disciples. Yeah, get in the boat. And Jesus is like, nah. You say yes to the demons and the people who don't like you and you say no to the guy who's trying to be obedient to you. And we may, we may feel that sometimes, don't we? Like, what is going on in my world where it sounds like these, these green lights and these doors are just opening for all these other people and the Lord is, has me over here and he gives them a reason for this, right? He's, Jesus is going to go back. He's going to go back and he's been telling them to keep quiet about him back in Galilee because they don't know who he is yet and his followers don't know who he is yet. They haven't really figured him out. And until then, he can't go and die on the cross. But over in Gentile world, he's like, man, you need to do something different. You've, you know who I am. Go proclaim what God has done for you and how he has changed you. Tell about how God has changed you through experiencing my power. Declare how much God has done for you. Return to your home. Somewhere that might not be so easy to return to when you were a formerly demon-possessed man who was naked, who was living amongst the tombs, who was harming himself, who was yelling, whose shackles couldn't even hold him. Go home and tell people about Jesus. And what does he do? He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see back in verse 38, Jesus tells him, go, go declare how much God has done for you. And here in those two verses we see Luke is telling his audience, he's saying Jesus and God, they are one. Along with the Holy Spirit, they are this triune Godhead. Jesus is not just some great prophet. He's not just some miracle worker. He is God. So, how do I interact and reflect upon this passage over the course of the next week? It's a passage that can seem so distant. I've never encountered someone with a demon. I've never had a demon. I don't understand what this is. This, this feels like a movie. Well, it depends on where you're at. And so let's consider, as we wrap up, let's consider those involved with this text. And it's my hope that you can relate with one of these four groups of people. So number one, the audience. This gospel account is written for who? Theophilus, remember that from Luke, Luke 1? Theophilus, the Gentiles, the Greek audience. So you mean to tell me that the God who came in the flesh has pursued one of us? The Jewish God who those people over there in Galilee, they worship, he's come in the flesh and pursued one of us Gentiles? And not only just one of us, he's pursued like the worst of the worst of us. The sovereign, sovereign maker of heaven and earth left heaven, sailed out of Galilee and landed 
on the shores of the land of the Gerasenes. And he pursues people like me and you. He does. That's the kind of God that we have. Number two. This sort of group is also off the pages. So think about the disciples. Remember we talked about how crazy of a day they've had. But think about this. They have seen some pretty interesting stuff this day. And they must have been considering, man, those demons, they knew who Jesus was. Our question, those demons could answer it. How is that so? We need to know who this God is, but it just some intellectual acceptance of who Jesus is, that's not going to do it. It just, it doesn't stop there. That knowledge, it didn't help the demons. But what, what did he just ask when, what did they just ask when the storm was happening? They, they, they said, Jesus asked them, where is your faith? Where is my faith? Is my faith in him and am I living like it? Am I walking by faith? James 2 challenges us not just to have an intellectual faith where we know that God exists. Yes, we've got to know that God exists. But our faith becomes active. Number three, the townspeople. It's almost like they're telling Jesus, I like my way. I don't always like your way. It's costly and it's disruptive being around you. Will you please leave? Thank you. It is costly and disruptive to follow Jesus. It's costly and disruptive to be near Jesus. We're going to see more about that in Luke chapter 9. It's costly when you serve. It's costly when you give. It is costly when you suffer. But man, how sweet our Savior is in those moments when we are following him. He does not leave us in those moments, but rather he walks with us, especially when you are broken. I have been there. God, leave me alone. I could not shake him. He was pursuing me. You know why? First off, because he is the omniscient, omnipotent, incarnate, triune God of the universe who knows everything about me. And he knows everything about you. And he dwells with his people. And because I had a best friend and an uncle who would not stop praying for 19-year-old AJ. And number four, the one from whom the demons had gone, the demoniac who's been delivered, if you too have been transformed by the gospel, if you've been transformed by God and you've sat at the feet of Jesus, you know him and he knows you. The command is simple, but it is not easy. But he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. See, go and declare how much God has done for you and let it be said of us. They went proclaiming throughout the whole city 
how much Jesus had done for them. Let it be said of you. Let it be said of us. Let it be said of Citadel Square. Let it be said of the churches in Charleston. Let it be said of you, your household, your family, that you went out declaring how much Jesus had done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that can seem distant, God, but it's near. It's near because you are near to us. You're near to the man who is lost in evil and demonic possession. God, and you freed him. You freed him and you freed us of the bonds of sin. If we put our trust and hope in you, and I pray that for those who haven't yet, they would today. God, and for those who have, have I pray that we would let you in to those areas where we try to stiff arm you, God, where we try to, to tell you to leave us alone. What have you to do with us? What business have you here, Jesus? You have every right to be here, to impress upon us, to, to nudge us, and to shape our lives so that we are no longer in control, but we relinquish all control to our Savior and our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.